Doing this morning our study of the book of Revelation, and uh, yeah, before we get there, I'd like to ask you to turn to the book of Second Corinthians, if you would, the book of Second Corinthians. <clears throat> now, where we are in our our study in Revelation 17, really, we find ourselves in a very, very controversial passage of Scripture. We find ourselves in something that uh, would be a whole lot easier for us just to, to bypass, but when you understand as a minister of the Word of God, and especially those of us that minister in the last days, we have been required by God to preach the whole council. We've been required by God to preach the Word, and part of the Word is Revelation chapter 17, and even though that goes against the grain of what what we like and what people on this planet in these last days want to hear, it is part of the Word of God, and so we are required by God to just tell what it says. And the thing that makes this so unbelievably important to me is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says in verse 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, now just look up here for a second. W what he's explaining is those of us who have come to the place to where we have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have come to the place to where we understand that there's nothing that we can do. We can't be religious enough. We can't do enough good works. We can't get wet enough in a baptism. We can't go to enough catechism classes. We can't do anything to come to God. And so in, in, in just an a, a absolute pursuit of God and, and in brokenness before God, understanding our condition, we call out to Him for mercy, for grace. And the Bible says that when we call upon the name of the Lord, trusting Him and Him alone, what happens is we are able to enter into that relationship with God that we were just talking about during our, our song service this morning. We're able to come into a relationship with Him, and, and He puts it in such graphic terminology here. What he says is true of us that know the Lord this morning is we have been espoused to the Lord Jesus Christ as our one husband. And what he does is he likens this relationship that we have with him to that of a marriage. This same thing is re repeated in Ephesians chapter 5. It's why in Revelation 21 when we get there we're going to find out that we are called the bride of of Christ, because we have been espoused to him as our one husband. But Paul has a concern, and he says in verse 3, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be com corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And what he begins to do here is he begins to talk about the fact that Satan hates this relationship that you and I have. He hates the thought of anybody else on this planet coming into that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you know what he does? He has ministers. Listen, I'm not talking about Jesus now. I'm talking about Satan. He has ministers. Now, now, you know, if I were just going to throw that out and that was my opinion, that'd be one thing. This is not my opinion. W would you look at what he says in, right here where we are, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says in verse 13, For such are false apostles. These ones he's worried are going to corrupt the people on this planet. He calls them false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, he says, this shouldn't blow us away. This shouldn't, you know, make us step back. He says, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if 
his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I, I, I say again, let no man think me a fool. He's say, saying, listen guys, you've got to understand, there are Satan's ministers that are out there. And they're very, very difficult to detect because he calls them ministers of what? Of righteousness. You see, when we think in terms of somebody who is satanic, we think of somebody that's involved in all kinds of gross immorality and doing all kinds of wicked things. And, and yes, th there is that. But what he's talking about here is Satan's ministers, the ones that you've really got to watch out for, those deceptive workers are ones who are ministers of righteousness, who have a life that you couldn't, you couldn't condemn, you couldn't blame that life for anything. And you know what makes them so deceptive? The message that they carry. Now remember who they are. They are Satan's ministers. But the message that they carry is not, Hey, the devil is God and so follow him. No. You know what they preach? Listen. They preach about Jesus. They preach about the gospel. They preach about receiving the Spirit. That's what makes it so deceptive. And now, now listen, the, the Bible says that there were many, many antichrists at the time when John wrote 1 John. And he says that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. In other words, things aren't going to get better, okay? There were many antichrists in 95 AD when John wrote. How many do you think there are now when God said the condition is just going to get worse and worse? And yet, listen, the thing that is so scary, y'all, is anybody that waves a Bible today or quotes a verse or says the word Jesus or says anything about the gospel or talks about receiving the Spirit, well, how, how in the world could we ever fault them? The reason that we can fault them is because Satan has ministers who preach about Jesus and preach about the gospel and preach about receiving another spirit. But if you will, look in verse 3. And this is verse, uh, verse 4. This Jesus and this gospel and this spirit, if you would, look in verse 4, and would you just look at the word that precedes each one of those words? What's the word? Another. They are preaching about Jesus, but it is another Jesus than the one that is proclaimed in the word of God. They preach the gospel, but it's another Jesus other than the one that is revealed in the word of God. They talk about receiving the Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit of God that people are receiving. And, and you see, this is what makes it all just, oh my goodness, so incredibly dangerous. Paul said it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. In the last days, what? Perilous times shall come. And I want to say to you, I don't even know through the years how many times I've said this to you folks. I want to just say it again. I feel like I need to say it every time we come to this passage. Don't ever, ever, ever trust anything that you hear me say when I'm preaching this book. What the Bible says in, in 1 John chapter 4 is that we are required by God to try the spirits whether they be of God. In other words, don't ever come in here and just assume because that for the last 12 years I've been preaching truth that I'm going to preach truth today. Because wouldn't that be just a, a wonderful way for Satan to work? Just oh, go for 12 years and then start when people have been lulled into, yeah, we can trust him. Don't ever, ever, ever trust a human being, including this one. Always take everything that you hear and use the, the principle of, of Bible study revealed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, comparing things spiritual with things spiritual. But in light of the fact that Satan has ministers 
who are ministers of righteousness, who are deceiving people into receiving another Jesus and another spirit and another gospel. That's why we've got to do the things that we're going to be doing today in talking about the false system that Satan has been using now for century after century after century. And now go over, if you would, to Revelation chapter 17. Now in chapter 15 and 16, what John has witnessed is the pouring out of the seven vials. Those vials contained something. Let's say it together. What did those vials contain, y'all? The the wrath of God. And he reveals to us in chapter 15 and verse 1 that for the last 6,000 years, though God has been working with all of us with grace and mercy and tenderheartedness and compassion and forgiveness, all the while, his wrath has been filling up, being stored in seven containers that God calls vials. And we've gone through the pouring out of those seven vials. And then in chapter 17... In verse 1, it says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, this great whore that sits on many waters, as we're going to see, is revealed as Babylon. You see that down in verse 5. Now, we've seen Babylon back in chapter 14. Verses 7 and 8, it talked about the judgment that would come upon Babylon. Uh, even, uh, just look up right from where you are there in the middle of verse 19 of chapter 16. And it talks about great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And what we find in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is the, the commentary on what John was talking about back in verse 19 of chapter 16. He is seeing here the, the judgment upon Babylon. But notice that he refers to her in language that I, I would use outside of the fact that this is the way that God uses his terminology to describe her. He describes this woman as the great Whore, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So, John says, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And John says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And you see that this whole passage is all about a woman. He keeps talking about this woman, a woman, a woman. And we began last time looking at an historical and biblical view of this woman here in Revelation chapter 17. And I feel like I, as we are talking about this system of religion, I, I do think it's important that we understand and we keep the heart in this thing. You, you see, there's a lot of people on this planet that are trapped in the system of religion that is referred to here as this, this woman. In fact, this morning, over one billion people on this planet right now profess to be Christian in the name of religion that is referenced here in Revelation chapter 17 in this woman. A lot of the people that we live near, a lot of people that we work with, a lot of people that are in our own families are people who are caught in this, this system. And you've got to be very, very careful when we come into a passage like this that it doesn't become this rah, rah meeting to where we start growing fangs and and beginning to, to get to where we 
aren't very Christian any longer because the watchword of those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, what Jesus said, all men would know that we were his disciples by this, this one thing, and that is, it's love. And would you listen to this little quote by Vance Havner? He says, the trouble is, we may leave our first love fighting error and end up with hot heads and cold hearts. To win a theological argument and come out of it with a harsh and unloving spirit is to be defeated after all. It is unhappily true that some of the most cantankerous and cold-hearted Christians are loudest in their censure of false doctrine. Nobody in pulpit or pew needs a revival more than a bitter-spirit fundamentalist with his dispensations right and his disposition wrong. And if you're here today and the things that you will hear this morning are an affront to you because maybe you're a part of that system, may I just tell you that our purpose in this is not to attack you personally. We want to be very clear. We do intend to attack the system that Revelation 17 attacks. But we do not intend in any way, shape, or form to attack any person in this, in this system. So this morning, church, let's, let's make sure that we don't lose who we are in the midst of standing against false doctrine. But this woman that is talked about here in Revelation chapter 17 is a woman, this isn't the first time that she appears in the Bible. In fact, it's not even the first time she appears in the book of Revelation, as we'll see in a little longer, or a little later this morning. But this is the woman that we saw last time that we find in Proverbs chapter 7. And would you turn back there for just a second? We saw, first of all, that she is the strange woman of the book of Proverbs. This woman that we just read about in Revelation chapter 17 is, in fact, the strange woman of the book of Proverbs. And what we've seen in this this passage, Proverbs chapter 7, and you can see it in chapter 2, verses 10 to 22, chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, chapter 6, verses 20 to 33. I mean, this woman is, has a dominant place in the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs in the Bible. And, and now listen, what, what the Bible says is that she is a woman that lures you into her house. And when you come into this house, what it says, it's a place where you take your fill of love until the morning, until the rising of the sun. And what he says is all that go into her find their ruin by going in to her. Now, the Bible's been prophesying this for a long time. What's kind of wild is back in 1962, there was a group of prophets who came on the scene who had a lot of these truths nailed down, and they gave somewhat of a prophetic warning to all of us, and it went something like this. Don't sing. to interrupt that because I know you, some of y'all are ready to jam. 
But I'll tell you what, did those old boys nail it? I mean, they're just saying, hey, don't do this. I made this mistake. Oh, don't go there. She'll ruin you. And oh, I, I, you know, we're, we're all about Revelation chapter 17. And, and I, we need to get to that. But oh, before we get into all of the heavy stuff of Revelation 17, could I just talk to you for just a second? Could I talk to you men and just let you know that you have an adversary, the devil, that is seeking to devour you. He has got his sights set on you. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have sought to keep your life pure. And because of that, he's got his sights set on you. And man, he is just waiting to devour you. And one of the ways that he is devouring men in our culture is through this strange woman. And this strange woman is appearing everywhere now. Because she lures, you'll be on your computer and she'll lure you into her net, the internet. And that woman will end up ruining you. Would you look here in Proverbs chapter 7? Verse 25, Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths, for she has cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. God says this woman will make your life hell on earth. Don't go in unto her. Chapter 2, verse 18, look at it. For her house inclineth unto death, and her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life. Go over to chapter 5, verse 5. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Chapter 6 and verse 32. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. The way that, that Peter talked about this in reference to Lot is that he vexed his righteous soul. And you see, what you do not understand through this sin of going in unto this woman, whether it be visually through pornography, whether it be through an actual act, what you do not understand is she destroys your soul. She is in the process of vexing your righteous soul. Another way of, of saying that vexing thing is your soul inside of you that God saved. That righteous soul is shrinking. It's diminishing. Your capacity for spiritual things is diminishing as you are going in unto this woman. And so over and over and over, God in His Word talks about this, this sin of fornication. And that's why He says in Acts chapter 15 and verse 29, abstain from it. It's why He says in Acts chapter 21 and verse 25, keep from it. That's why He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 8, flee from it. It's why He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2, avoid it. That's why he says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, mortify or kill it. That's why he says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, don't let it once be named among you as becometh saints. God's pretty strong about this sin of fornication that is committed as men go in unto this strange woman. But as powerful as that teaching is, and, and as, as sincerely as we should take those truths and apply those to our lives physically, what you've got to understand is that this woman, this strange woman from the book of Proverbs, is really just a picture. She is a picture of a religious system that is consistent throughout the Bible. And yes, 
going in unto the strange woman physically, yes, it will make your life hell on earth. It'll, it'll kill your family. It'll bring you down to death. But going in unto this strange woman religiously, spiritually, will literally bring you into the depth of hell where you will be separated from God in the place of torment for all of eternity. And oh my goodness, man, heed the warning. Don't go into the strange woman. Don't let her make your life a hell on earth. But for God's sake, let's don't make the, the mistake. Let's don't make, find ourselves committing the sin of going in unto this woman religiously, spiritually. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, would you just turn over there real quick? Ecclesiastes, right after the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, look at verse 26. Solomon says, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. And again, in a spiritual sense, that has happened to at least one billion people on this planet and, and even more than that. So, first of all, she is the strange woman from the book of Proverbs. And then number two on your outline, she is the religious woman from the Tower of Babel. She is the religious woman from the Tower of Babel. And let's, let's just get a little bit of a running start on here. It, it's been it was all the way back in February 18th when we actually talked about this, and, and I'll do this very quickly, but I think this will be important, especially for folks who were not here, uh, whatever that's been, three weeks or so ago, um, and for you folks who are guests. You, you need to understand something. I, I think that everybody in this room understands that the Bible talks about this, this Tower of Babel where people were trying to make their way into heaven. In fact, Babel means enter the gates of, of heaven. And, and we, we went back to Genesis chapter 9 and 10 and, and 11, and we began to see that the key figure in this whole thing of this satanically organized false system of religion that was taking place there at the Tower of Babel was all under the direction of a guy by the name of Nimrod, a man whose name means rebellion. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord or against the Lord. And what he was seeking to do was establish a kingdom on the earth that was against God. And so what you've got there is you've got a king whose name means rebellion seeking to set up a kingdom on the earth that is in opposition to God. Now listen, if you know anything about the Bible, you know already when you just hear those pieces come together that this is something that continues to be revisited in the Word of God. Ecclesiastes 3.15 says, That which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. In other words, God's telling you, if you want to know about, uh, about the future, look at history, because history keeps repeating itself. And we could go back into Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and find out that there was a king on the earth who was seeking to unify the the beings that were on this earth in a one-world religion, in a one-world government against God. It repeats again in Genesis chapter 11. It's going to repeat again, as we're going to see this morning, at about 325 A.D. And again, if you know anything about what's getting ready to take place on this planet, you know what's getting ready to happen? The church of Jesus Christ is going to be removed and there is going to be a king who is a rebellious king who is going to seek to unify the world religiously and politically in a kingdom that's in opposition to God. And so you see, if you begin to understand 
what has taken place through the Bible, you can go to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, where it talks about this tower and learn a, a whole lot of things that are going on there. Because what was happening is Nimrod was taking a city that was the government and the political aspect and was building a tower that was the religious aspect. And you see that one of the key things that you need to understand of what was going on back at that tower is Nimrod had a wife. Her name was Semiramis. She was the high priestess of the Tower of Babel religion. And the way that it unfolded is Nimrod died, and sometime after that, Semiramis gets pregnant, okay? And so what she does is she begins to claim that she actually conceived through a supernatural birth. She said that she conceived through a, a sunbeam and that the child inside of her was actually Nimrod come back to life. His name was Tammuz, and Tammuz was born onto this planet, and what you had back at the Tower of Babel religion was a holy mother with a holy child because she had conceived supernaturally. And this was the religion that was taking place. His birthday... Tammuz's birthday just happened to be December 25th. She gave birth to the sun god. And God comes down, as you know, in Genesis chapter 11, and he, he comes to that tower, and he comes to that city, and what he does is, first of all, he scatters them all over the world. They wanted to just set up shop right there in Shinar and have their kingdom where they were all one. They didn't want to replenish the earth, as God had said. And so they're going to do their own thing in rebellion against God. And God says, okay, watch this. And he scatters them throughout the earth. But not only did he scatter them, but he did something else. Do you remember what it was? He confounded their language. They all began to speak different languages as they went to different parts of the world. And you see, as they went, obviously they took with them the seeds of that Tower of Babel religion, but because God had confounded their language, as the worship of this holy mother in this child found its expression, it was in different names. And that's why, no matter where you go on this planet, as you study ancient religions, that's why they are all, count them, all going to have a holy mother who is worshipped along with a holy child. We, we, some of the, the men that are in this room, we, we went throughout India about 10 years or so ago. And you know what we saw all over India? A holy mother with a child, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus and it's that way all throughout the history of the world. None of that really makes any significance to anybody until you understand something monumental that took place in around 325 A.D., actually a little bit earlier than that, about 303. Now, now grab this, okay? Here is this mother and child religion that is all over the earth, and of course it had made its way to Rome. At the time of Jesus, of course, the Roman Empire is dominating the world. It's the pagan religions, and you know what? It's all about a holy mother and a child. It's all about all of that stuff. And what was taking place back there is that if you did not worship the gods of paganism, they would kill you. And here comes the Lord Jesus Christ, he establishes his church. People are born into a relationship with him. And people who are, are, are just absolutely dogmatic on the fact that they wouldn't bow to any idol whatsoever. And they are commanded under those, that Roman paganism to bow to those gods, to worship those gods. And they wouldn't do it. And they would, they would torture them. And it was as brutal as anything that you can imagine. As you read about it in history, what they begin to talk about it is the fact that they... they it could no longer invent ways to persecute Bible-believing people just like you and I. They ran out of ways to do it, it says. And there were ten official Roman persecutions that were, took place. 
But what was happening is the Roman Empire was beginning to crumble. They'd been coming against these Bible believers, but the more they persecuted them, the more the people began to say, you know what? For them to endure that kind of affliction and put their neck on the line, there must be some truth to it. And it became a great evangelistic tool. The persecution from the state, from that Roman paganism, and, and it's beginning to flourish. But that Roman Empire is beginning to weaken. And so here comes a battle, the Battle of Milvian Bridge. One of the, the, the players in the battle is Constantine. He's coming against uh, another guy, and whoever is going to win this battle is going to be the next Roman emperor. And so, here he is. He's, he's coming outside of his tent one day, and he's thinking, okay, what are we going to do here? How are we going to get this, this battle won? Because I do want to become the, the one that dominates the world. I do want to have that title, the vicar of Christ on the earth. I want to be the Pontifex Maximus. I, I want that title. So what am I going to do? All of a sudden, he has a vision. He sees a, a cross in the sky. He hears a voice, and it says, By this sign thou shalt conquer. And so what he does is he runs out and puts crosses on his, the shields and on the horses and on the banners and all of this stuff, and he begins to fight under the cross. And he begins to talk about the fact that as he saw this vision, he heard a voice, and that voice, you know, well, that was, that was Jesus. And, and, well, you know what? He, he gave me the victory, and so now I'm a Christian. And what we're going to do is we're going to make Rome Christian. Now that's going to be the state church. And you see, the, the dude was no dummy. He knew that religion is a great way to unify a people. And so what he begins to do is say, hey, man, we've been fighting this thing. Why don't we use it? Use it to our advantage, and we'll just, hey, we'll just be Christian. But you've got to understand something. Constantine was no more saved than the man in the moon. He was no more a tool in the hand of God like church historians want to hold him up as, as the man in the moon. He was a tool in the hand of Satan. And what took place in the Pergamus church period, spelled out for us in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what took place is Constantine was the tool in Satan's hand that was used to marry paganism to Christianity. The world converted Christianity, if you will, and what you had is a weird, diabolical form of Christianity that was set up as a counterfeit against what God was doing. But you see, what took place there as, as the world was blended with that paganism is, well, you know what, we've been, we've been celebrating, you know, the, the birth of, uh, of this holy child with this holy mother on December 25th, and, you know, we do have all of these celebrations. We, you know, we bring the, the, the Christmas tree into our house, and we decorate it, and we have the mistletoe and, and the parades and the giving of gifts and all of that stuff, and, you know... Man, yeah, we're all about this Christianity thing, but, you know, what about our celebration? Oh, well, okay, that's fine. And, and so the statues that used to be of Semiramis and Tammuz overnight became statues of Mary and the Holy Child, and Mary begins to be worshipped. They, they celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th. The, the spring festival that they had, Ishtar, held in honor of the supposed resurrection of Tammuz, all of a sudden it becomes Christian right along. And it's all there, y'all. All of the bunnies, the colored eggs, the sunrise services. It was all there before Christianity. It's just now all of this pagan trash gets thrown onto what was true Bible-believing Christianity. And you see, in pagan Rome, there was the pagan Roman emperor, and now he becomes called the Pope. There was the pagan Roman Senate. It's now the College of Cardinals. There was the imperial governors in that pagan society. They become the archbishops. There were the provincial governors. They become the bishops. There were the civitas. They become the priests. And what began to happen is Christianity was engulfed.
in that paganism. And there was nothing Christian uh, about the thing. And whereas in times past, they persecuted you because you wouldn't worship the gods of paganism. And now, what happened is, if you wouldn't worship the gods of Roman Catholicism, you were persecuted in ways that made the pagan Roman persecution seem like a Sunday school picnic. Some of the historians, as they, they write about it, Will Durant says, compared with the persecution of heresy by the Roman Catholic Church, the persecution of Christians by pagan Rome was a mild and humane procedure. Peter DeRosa, uh, a Roman Catholic historian, admits that Catholicism became, listen to it, the most persecuting faith the world has ever seen. Pope Innocent III murdered far more Christians in one afternoon than any Roman emperor did in his entire reign. And this became the state religion. This came to be called the universal Christianity. And what you had was an emperor, a king of rebellion, unifying the world religiously and politically in a kingdom against God. Sound familiar? You see, that is where all of history is moving, and it all goes back to what was taking place at the Tower of Babel. And when you see that key thing that took place under Constantine in 325 A.D., all of a sudden, this woman of Revelation chapter 17, now you understand why she is called Mystery Babylon. God wants to make sure that we make that connection back to Babylon so that we understand who this woman actually is. So she is the strange woman of the book of Proverbs. Number two, she is the religious woman of the Tower of Babel. And then number three, she is that woman, Jezebel, of the book of Revelation. That woman, Jezebel. And turn over, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. I'll show you why I word it that way. It's because that's the way that God words it. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, this is the Thyatira church period. The seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3 represent seven periods of church history. The first was Ephesus from around 95 A.D. up to around 200. The next was Smyrna from around 200 to 325. And the next was Pergamos from around 325 A.D. to 500. And now Thyatira is that fourth period of church history from around 500 to 1000 A.D., and look at what it says in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. God says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed, unto idols. And, and this woman that he's talking about here in Revelation 2, verse 20, we, we can assume from the context that this is not the literal woman Jezebel because she lived centuries before, but this is a religious system that he's talking about. And so that we know how to identify the actual doctrines of the system, he calls her Jezebel. And of course, Jezebel is a, a key female religious leader, a, a prophetess who caused all kinds of problems for God's people way back in the Old Testament. And, and, and look at it again now. He identifies this religious system as Jezebel here in verse 20 in the Thyatira period. So we go back and find out what literal Jezebel was really all about so we would know how that found its expression in the Thyatira period. So let's take a minute to see this connection that our Lord's trying to get us to see. And I want you to turn back with me 
to Judges chapter 18. Now, obviously, I'm not going to bring you through every jot and tittle of everything that's going on here, but there's a few things I want to call to your attention that you, you want to make sure that you don't miss. Now, in Judges 18, look, look at the, the first three words of verse 1. And somebody tell me what the context is of what we're reading about here. The tribulation period, right? Every time that you see that phrase used in the Word of God, in those days, it's always setting the context for you. It's just one of those little keys that God has planted in His book to let you know where you are and what you're dealing with. In other words, when you see that phrase, in those days, somewhere in your Old Testament, get your antennas up and just start looking around because God's getting ready to show you something that's going to take place again in the future. So the context is, is set for us in those days, a time when there will be no king in Israel. And you'll notice that verse 1 begins to talk about a specific tribe of Israel, the tribe of Dan. Okay, now there's something you need to know about the tribe of Dan that God has, by this point, already clearly laid out in his word. Now just... just get this. In Genesis chapter 49, in verse 17, the tribe of Dan is called a serpent. In Genesis 49, 17 says this, Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels so that his rider shall fall backward. Okay, so just file that. He's a, a serpent. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, and verse 22, God said of Dan, Dan is a lion's whelp, or a lion's cub. Okay, so now just run that through your biblical computer for just a second. He's called a serpent and a lion. Okay, what is Satan called in Genesis 3, 1, y'all? A serpent. And what is Satan called in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8? A lion. So here you have Dan, a picture of Satan in the tribulation period, and it might just give you a little clue as to why in Revelation chapter 7, when God details for us the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12,000 that would come from each one of them, maybe when you begin to see that Dan is a serpent and a lion who is a picture of Satan in the tribulation period, maybe you'll understand why Dan is written out of that, the 12 tribes in Revelation chapter 7. You see, there's a king of rebellion who's going to come, and I, I believe he's going to come from the tribe of Dan. And in verse 4, look at it here. Okay, and just, just file this in your head. Again, I wish we had time to go through this in detail, but we, we don't. But would you notice in verse 4, the tribe of Dan gets a young man to be a priest for its tribe. And look down at verse 19. What, what is this priest called, you know? He's called a father. Okay? And look at verse 20. The priest called father uses idols as a part of his worship. And you'll notice in verse 28, they settle up by Zidon, which is called Sidon. It's up where the, the Phoenicians live. And, and Genesis chapter 10, verse 19, tells you that's where the Canaanites settled. And, and now listen, Tammuz's name in the Phoenician language is Baal. Okay? Now, now hold on to that. Okay, so now notice the components of the worship of Baal in Zidon. It has priests who are called father who use idols as aids in worship. Okay, now keep that in mind and let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. 
Now, in First Kings 16 and verse 29, you'll notice that Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And check out his epithet in verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Now, folks, listen. That is quite a statement there, because there were some majorly wicked kings before this guy. And verse 31 lets you know what this guy's problem was and why he was so evil. Look at the middle of verse 31. He took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. Okay? You know what the Hebrew name Jezebel means? It means Baal exalts, or Baal is husband to. And her father's name, you see it there, Ethbaal, you know what it means? It means with Baal. And you know who Ethbaal, Jezebel's father, was? Look at it there in verse 31. The king of the Zidonians, or the king of Zidon. Wait now, we just read about Zidon back in Judges chapter 18 and what was going on in the worship up there. Okay, you making the connections? And, and watch the power and the influence Jezebel had on her husband Ahab. The end of verse 31 says, He went and served Baal and worshipped him. Okay, and how do you think that that worship found its expression when it had to do with Baal, when it had to do with Zidon, where her father was from? Now, in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, look at what it says. 1 Kings 21, verse 25, it says, If there was none like unto Ahab, listen, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Revelation 2.20 that we just looked at about Jezebel, it used the word seduced. And that's what she did with her husband. Verse 32, go back to 1 Kings 16 now. 1 Kings 16 Notice verse 32, that Ahab raises up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. Verse 33, he makes a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Now listen, that's the influence of this satanic woman on this king of Israel's life. And here he is selling himself out to follow a satanic, counterfeit religion with priests called Father who use images as aids in their worship. And not only does she seduce her husband into this whole idolatrous and and spiritually adulterous relationship, she is used by Satan to seduce the entire nation of Israel, at least the northern kingdom, into following Baal. It had just been the tribe of Dan, one of the ten tribes. Chapter 18, what you begin to find is that it's the entire nation. And Elijah comes out, and, and, he, and he, you know the story. He comes out and he says, hey... This is crazy. If God be God, serve him. But if, if Baal be God, then serve him. And the whole nation of Israel had followed suit of this king, following this religion that used priests called Father, who used idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. And you see, get it this way on your study sheet. I, in the Old Testament, Satan used a literal woman called Jezebel to bring Baalism in to provoke the true worship of God in Israel. You got that? 
In the Old Testament, Satan used a literal woman called Jezebel to bring Baalism in to pervert the true worship of God in Israel. In the church age, Satan used a figurative woman called Jezebel to bring Roman Catholicism in to pervert the true worship of God in Christianity. You got it? You need it again? In the church age, Satan used a figurative woman called Jezebel to bring Roman Catholicism in to pervert the true worship of God in Christianity. But the thing that you cannot miss, y'all, is the reason our Lord calls this system Jezebel in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20 is because it is the same exact system. Baalism of the Old Testament is Roman Catholicism in the New. The, the Jesus of Roman Catholicism with its robed priest called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. Guys, it is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus that we were talking about from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 4. It is another Jesus who was proclaimed in another gospel and is received through another spirit and is preached by what that very same passage calls false apostles, and Satan's ministers. And, and again, we don't say that today because we have an axe to grind with anybody that's in this room that is a Roman Catholic. And, and you know, as I was thinking about this, this message today and where we were going to land on all of this, I thought to myself, man, I wish, I wish we had the time this morning from all over this room to just bring people that were exposed to the gospel through somebody that loved them enough in this ministry to tell them the truth of the Word of God and let those people tell you how the true Jesus from the true gospel, from the true Word of God, totally transformed their life. And, and listen, this is not about you know, us trying to promote ourselves and say that, you know, we're the only ones right around here. But by the same token, listen, can you, can you not see that God calls that woman Jezebel so you'll go back by comparing things spiritual with things spiritual and you'd find out who she really was and what that worship is that she brought in that God calls fornication. It's adultery. It is spiritual adultery. You know what it is? It's going into the strange woman whose ways lead to hell. And the reason that we talk about this is not so we can tick everybody off. Not so we could bring you here today to offend you. The reason we talk about this is because we don't want you to go to hell. You see, it is such a deceptive system because it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about the gospel. It's all about receiving the Spirit. And it is so deceptive that you'll go to hell in the name of Jesus. But not the Jesus of the Bible. And so today, if you're here and you don't know the Lord as, as your Savior, maybe you are a part of that system. Maybe you aren't. Our invitation to you today is to receive the Jesus of the Bible, who is God in human flesh that came to this planet because no religion on the face of the earth, including Baptist. In fact, let's put Baptist at the top of the list of things that you could trust in that will send you straight to hell. It's not a matter of being Baptist. It's not a matter of being Catholic. It's not a matter of being any of that. 
it's coming to the place where you realize that religion will send you straight to hell. But what this whole thing was all about was not about you getting a religion that you could adopt for yourself. What it's all about is coming to the place of surrender and saying, I get it. There's nothing I can do. And so I trust what you did, not what some church says I got to do. The Bible says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is, that he died on the cross, was buried, and rose again victorious over sin that he had conquered. It, the Bible says, if you'll call upon his name, thou shalt be saved. It has nothing to do with anything that this church could do for you, this church could do with you, or this church tells you you got to do. It's what that book tells you you got to do. you got to come to the place to where you quit trusting religion. You quit trusting good works. You quit trusting any rites or rituals that you've carried out. And you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And as our service is concluded today, if, if you'd like to talk to someone about receiving the Jesus of the Bible. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front uh, of this room. And right now I'd like to just ask you to consider what you've heard today. And before you get out of here today and turn all of this off, would you respond to what God is seeking to do in, in your heart? But now listen, y'all. The thing that I think that we need to understand as believers here today, those of us that already know the Lord, in just a little while, y'all, the world is going to become very, very religious. A religious leader is going to appear on this planet, and he is going to unify the world religiously. And the system of religion that he is going to use is the system that we're talking about here, identified in the strange woman, the woman of the Tower of Babel, that religious woman, that woman Jezebel, that we went back and saw the components of the worship of that thing. That is the woman that rides the beast. It's the woman that we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 17. And we have the opportunity right now, before that religious leader comes on the scene, to unify the world in that false system of religion. Guys, listen. We, God has graciously allowed us to understand His truth. And that gives us a tremendous responsibility of reaching people that are trapped in that system or whatever system of religion and maybe trapped in no religion at all. It gives us the opportunity to reach them with the gospel. And listen, if we can just come in here and rah, 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 fill our heads with all of this truth and go out and live our life and live disconnected from the people all around us that are going to go to hell, God help us. This ought to do something in the inside of all of us that makes us want to do whatever we can possibly do to reach the people in our own Jerusalem. And so I'm asking you, church, let's don't lose our, our heart in the midst of coming against false teaching. May this cause our hearts to break to where we actually are able to do what Jesus said and let the world know that we're his disciples by the love that flows out of our heart for one another and for the people that are still outside of a relationship with him. Our hearts need to be touched through all of this. And I, I pray that God will use those things today to touch our hearts and to break our hearts for the people that are around us that need the message of the gospel. And Lord, would you please help us today to not lose sight of this world that is so desperately in need of you. Lord, we know that Satan is unbelievably deceptive, more so than we could ever possibly imagine. We, we begin to get just a glimpse of it through the, the things that we, we've seen today. And just going back and, and seeing 
how long before you were born of a virgin on this planet, Satan had already corrupted the teaching so that he could counterfeit what you were seeking to do to reach the people of this planet. Lord, help us not to be calloused. Help us not to become mean-spirited. Lord, help us to find the way to hate Satan and his false systems while we still while we still love sinners, people separated from you and people who will spend an eternity in the torments of hell unless unless we do something to tell them of your glorious power to save. And Lord, I pray for people in this room today that don't know you. I pray that this would be the day of their salvation. I pray that you would give them the courage to step out today and and talk to one of our pastors so that they can be taken to your word and find out today how they can come into that personal relationship with you apart from human works and apart from human religion. We do pray that you'd save folks in this service today. In Jesus' name, amen.